My name is Matt Yoder. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning we have the unique privilege of having Jared Cole with us. He is on the pastoral staff over at Cornerstone Church in Ames. He is also the son-in-law of Troy Nesbitt. So, you know, you know it's going to be great. And it was first service. So we're, we're privileged to have him here preaching the word for us this morning. So let's pray for Jared. God, thank you for Jared. Come fill him with your Holy Spirit, God. May his words be your words, Jesus. We want to hear from you, God. Anything less is not acceptable. So we, we thank you that we will hear from you, God, because we have your very words in the Bible. So thank you for Jared and his commitment to your word. May it flow through him, speak to our hearts, convict our hearts, bring encouragement, bring joy to our hearts. Bring conviction by your Holy Spirit. Do what you want this morning, God. We open ourselves to you and what you want, not what we want, Lord, to come speak. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Good morning, Stonebridge. Excuse me. Uh, my name is Jared. I am one of the pastors over at Cornerstone Church and um, just getting my, my bearings here in ministry. I've just been there for the last five months and Man, it's been a great time. I've been enjoying um, just the whirlwind of grace and love there and acceptance. And, you know, this has been a real big transitional period in my life. And God has been extremely gracious in this time, which I'll get to in a bit here. But the fact that I'm just standing here, you know, and, and getting a chance to preach God's word, man, it's, 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 it's overwhelming, right? And I feel a, a sense of um, uh, undeserving, right, in the sense of being underqualified, but it's just a testament to the affirmation and, and character of God that, man, like, he, he doesn't call the people who are the most equipped to do things, you know, he equips those that he calls uh, to his work, and so uh, with that, I just want to thank uh, your pastor, Matt Yoder, for giving me this opportunity to come and speak to you guys today. A uh, little story, it wasn't three weeks ago that he actually asked me to come speak to you guys, and um, it's a funny story, you know, he's there meeting with my father-in-law, Troy, and uh, apparently Troy instructs him to come to my office. And so he's coming down the hallways, coming to my office. I see this, you know, good looking, dirty, blonde haired guy walking in my doors and he introduces himself, Matt Yoder. Um, and we just start having conversation, you know, small talk and start talking about families, wife, kids, that sort of thing. Um, and halfway through our conversation, he's like, Hey, are you looking for any teaching reps? You know, I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm looking for some teaching reps, you know? And so, um, you know, I thought it was going to be maybe six months or maybe a year that I've been in ministry before he starts to ask me, you know, would you want to come teach at my church at Stonebridge, you know, but it wasn't even, I'm going to throw him under the bus three to four hours <laughs> before he sent me an email and said, hey, what do you think about these dates, right? He sent me two dates, September 29th, October 6th, and um, October 6th, I was busy. September 29th, I was like, hey, called my wife, you know, Matt Yoder just came in Stonebridge, asked if I'd come speak to his church on this date and, you know, asked her what she thought about that. And she said, Hey, go for it. You know, I have confidence in you. So that was, that was great, man. Matt, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I also know your pastor, Joey Weber as well. And, um, great guys, him and his wife, Andrea. And I just want to encourage you all that you guys are under a phenomenal leadership here. Very, very faithful leadership. And so, uh, with that, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out. Turn to Habakkuk 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be at for uh, the remainder of the time here. And so uh, go ahead and start turning there. If you don't have your phones and your Bible, is a tough book to 
fun. So I'll just go ahead and give you a little bit about myself while you guys are getting there. So I am from Kansas City, originally born and raised. I'm not from Iowa. Um, and that's Kansas City, Missouri, right? Let me clarify, not Kansas City, Kansas. A lot of times people ask me where I'm from, and I say Kansas City, and they say the Missouri side or the Kansas side. I'm like, Missouri side, the real Kansas City, right? <laughs> if you like the barbecue, the Chiefs, the Royals, that's all on the Missouri side. And so if someone says they're from Kansas City and you're like, where? And they say Shawnee Mission or Olathe or something like that, just be like, you're not from Kansas City. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, I'm the youngest of eight children, um, 31 years old. My mother and my grandmother made the trip up here from Kansas City to come uh, see their boy to their first son. So I'm glad they're here as well. Um, one thing, I am tall. I'm a big person, right? And what do you guys ask tall, big people? Do you play basketball, right? And yes, I did play basketball. Uh, once upon a time, I played ball at the University of Iowa. I played there 2007 to 2011. Um, go Hawks! By the way, go Hawks. Any Hawkeye fans in here? There we go. There we go. Hey, you can, you can clap for that. Go ahead, man. Um, yeah, by the way, Hawkeyes, uh, Cyclones, you guys did it again yesterday. You did it again. Man, I'm, I'm trying to hold my Cyclone jokes back, but y'all making it hard. You're making it hard for me, man. A um, couple weeks ago, Hawks, Cyclones. Uh, didn't look too good for you guys, man. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, so I played basketball at University of Iowa. I actually had an opportunity to play professional ball as well. So I uh, went overseas, played ball in Iceland that 2011 year. Uh, got to France from there, played basketball in France from um, 2012 to 2017. So five years there, traveled three different regions in France. I played on the West Coast in La Rochelle, France, played on the eastern border of France and Germany in uh, Strasbourg, and then I played in like southern kind of central in this uh, town called Vichy. Uh, my wife and I went there. You guys will see a picture of my wife and family here pop up soon, but we went there together. We got married in 2013, um, traveled the world, played basketball, had two beautiful girls over in France while we were there. This is my wife, Trisha. Uh, my three girls right there sitting on my lap. That is Kata. She's four years old. Over here, sitting on the on the bench, that's Riley. She is two. She'll be three here really soon. And then the middle one right there, she just uh, got here about six months ago. So, um, as you guys can see, they're very young. My house is. I know you're thinking my house is busy, right? And you guys can be praying for us about that. So, um, by now, you guys should be able to find uh, uh, Habakkuk three, and um, I'll begin reading the text here. So. A prayer for Bacchic, the prophet, according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have, heard, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his grace. His brightness was like the light and rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. 
You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place in light of your arrows as they sped at the flashing of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors and came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty powers. In verse 16, the last one here. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to come here and to Stonebridge Church and preach your word, Lord. And my prayer this morning is uh, simple, Lord. I pray that your word goes forth and mine doesn't. Uh, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last three weeks, you guys have been walking through uh, the first couple chapters in the book of Habakkuk uh, in a sermon series titled Honest Questions for God. Right. And if you haven't figured it out yet or if you've been sleeping through the last few sermons, right, the book of Habakkuk is about suffering. Right? It's about suffering. And when we say the word suffering, a lot of times right, in our American individualist culture, right, we, we kind of get conflicted about that word. We tend to not want to accept this word suffering, this, this, this word. Right? It means we're, we're struggling. We're not in control. Right? And so when you hear su- uh, suffering, some of us might think um, you know, suffering, like what suffering? I don't, I don't suffer. I got bootstraps. I'm American. I can lift myself up. Right. And we look at people when they're suffering and we say things like, well, why aren't they working harder? Why aren't they doing more? You know, or why do they not get out of that situation? And some others of us, we understand that suffering is a natural way of life. Right. And if that's not you and you find yourself being more, uh, the former, I just want to let you know that everyone suffers, right? Life is messy. Life is often uncontrollable and life is often unfair. And in the first chapter of Habakkuk, he he introduces us to this reality of life's messiness. In this chapter, we see he is looking at his nation, the nation of Judah, and witnessing injustice, saying in verse 2, How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save Why do you force me to look at injustice? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a crisis? A crisis by definition is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. And it can also be defined as a time uh, when a difficult or important decision needs to be made. And I think here in Habakkuk, he's finding himself in a crisis, right? The world seems not to be going as he, he thought it would. Things aren't going according to plan. God's speaking to him, and there's going to be destruction coming. There's going to be justice poured out on injustice, but it's not going to go out the way that he thought it was going out. He is reeling for answers. He's reeling for footing back on the ground. When our cars have trouble, what do we do with our cars, right? We 
take them to a mechanic, right? When our phones are bugging and, and we don't know what to do with our phones, what do we do? We take them to Apple support, right? Unless you have a Samsung, then you probably just throw it in the trash, right? <laughs> Shout out to all my Droid fans. Um, but the question that we ultimately want to answer here in Habakkuk, and the question I think uh, Habakkuk does answer here is, is, where do we go when it seems like life is falling apart, right? Where do we go when it seems like life isn't adding up, when it's not what we thought it was supposed to be, right? See, God often does this crazy thing where he reminds us that what we're, that he's God and we're not, right? Habakkuk isn't alone as a person who cries out to God in the face of injustice or in the middle of the crisis, right? And as we've seen in the first two chapters, this is exactly what he's doing. And I'll tell you a little story about me. I remember um, when I was in college, right, I was just talking to uh, a couple before a sermon started in. Um, I'm a a basketball player. So I played at the University of Iowa. I get there on campus. I'm a freshman and, you know, I'm I'm ready and and reared to go, right? I was a, a high profile athlete in Kansas City. I was ranked in the top 100 as a high school athlete. I was highly sought after on the recruitment circuit and Iowa popped up on the radar and that was ultimately where I ended at. And so, you know, I'm ready for the NBA, I'm getting going. Um, and I was young and I didn't really recognize, you know, the frailty of that dream, right? How that could, first of all, how hard it is to get there, but then also second, just how easy it could be taken away from me, right? It can be taken away just like that. And so um, that was actually a reality for me. I remember this so distinctly, right? I was in I was in the game. I worked my way up to be in the starting lineup. It was eight games into the season, my freshman year. Um, we ran a, a simple, simple play, one of the most simple plays in basketball, the screen and roll, right? I go set my screen. I roll to the basket. My teammate passes me the basketball. Great play. We're down one late in, this, late, 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 excuse me, late in the first half. I receive the basketball. I jump up. I'm screaming. I'm excited. I dunk the basketball. I'm screaming some more. I'm coming down. I land on the ground, and I hear a pop in my knee, right? But I'm still screaming. I'm screaming a different way now. And um, I start hopping. I start turning around. I can't put my left leg on the ground and I just crumble and fall down to the ground, right? And so that was the moment that I realized that my dreams weren't something I should be fighting for, but it was God that I should have been fighting for. Uh, but in those moments, you know, I saw it, I saw it as, a, as, a, as a setback, but I was also determined, right? I was young, I was 18 years old, and I just knew that this knee injury wouldn't keep me down. It wouldn't keep me from pursuing what I wanted, what I thought God had for me, right? But also remember in those moments, I prayed to God more than I had ever prayed in my entire life. Um, but one thing was different, right? I, was, I, I wasn't praying to get God, I was praying to get something from God. Right, I was praying for him to help me. I was praying to get something from him. Right, he, he owed me. I had worked way too hard. I had done too much. I had already, I beat everybody else. This was mine. It was mine to take. And he was going to help me get it. He had to heal me. Um, he was going to get me there. Right, He was too good to let me go out like that. But God had other plans. Right, Sometimes, like me, we all act like God is going to be our own personal genie. Right, like he just responds to every beck and call and he says, you know, we say, Hey God, I want this, I'm gonna pray for this, and he says, Yep, for sure I'm gonna get that for you. 
right? That's not how God works. I think this is the, uh, the posture that Habakkuk has. And I think this is the posture that we all tend to have at one time or another. You know, Habakkuk looks at the injustice and he's thinking, you know, of course God is going to just wave his magic finger and just poof, the injustice is going to be gone, right? Or sometimes in our lives, we might say, especially during those college years, of course God is going to bring me a spouse while I'm in college. Right? That's just what he's going to do. Of course God is going to bless us with a house full of children. That's what happens after you get married, right? There's a sense of confidence in that. There's a sense of hope in that, right? All the way up until what? It, it doesn't happen. And then now what? We get spinning, right? Our expectations are let down. Our world feels like it's crumbling. We don't know what, we, what we're doing. We, our footing seems to be not so sturdy anymore, right? If it gets too bad, it often feels like we don't know what's up from down, and in those moments, it's, it's more important than ever to ask this question. What do we really have our hope in? About a year and a half ago, I had the chance to go down to uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I was at my first Christian conference, uh, maybe the only Christian conference I'll ever go to. I do want to go to some more. I don't know how that's going to work. But it was an MLK 50 conference, April 4th, 2018. Uh, and I'll never forget it. Now, on April 4th, 51 years ago, in 1968, America assassinated one of its most vibrant, or if not the most vibrant and influential leader uh, here in America, Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King looked at his nation like Habakkuk looked at his nation of Judah, right? He saw a mass amount of injustice, um, and he was a man filled with hope. Right? He was a man filled with hope. He was so filled with hope that he gave his last breath, literally fighting against white supremacy, unjust legislation, and the evils of segregation. He was so filled with hope that even while getting his house bombed, he believed that God would settle the injustice. Right? Even while being ridiculed by both black and white clergy, these men of faith who he thought would just come right alongside him, walk with him, and help fight this issue of race? He thought God was going to settle that injustice. But he didn't. Right? And so in Memphis, um, we're at this conference. We get opportunity to go to the Civil Rights Museum. The Civil Rights Museum is awesome if you've never been there before. Uh, you go in and you just get to walk through all these different rooms. And each room is like a different era of black history and um, it's sombering, it's sobering, um, but it's a great opportunity if you've never done it before. So once you get to the end, uh, you go up this ramp, and what you do is you end up in the Lorraine Motel where uh, MLK ultimately took his last breaths, right? And so the things that MLK was fighting for, the injustices that he was fighting for, he was hoping God was going to help him get those accomplished. But what did he do? He didn't help him get those accomplished. What ended up happening? Okay. He ended up getting the bullet. That sent him on a one-way ticket out of here. So King's work and his nonviolent approach, it, it moved a lot of things, right? He, he had a lot of conversations. Um, he got the Civil Rights Act bill to be passed, right? He exposed injustice and forced governments to move. But as we see today... It's a lot easier to move legislation than it is to move hearts. 
these injustices, these racial injustices, these are still here and among us today, and, and it grieves me to my soul. In our country, we see a lot of segregated neighborhoods here, segregated cities, segregated neighborhoods that lead to housing disparities, right? We see segregated schools. If you're in the education system or the higher education system, there's a lot of talk about the achievement gaps, right? Um, Mass incarceration. Don't get me started on that, okay? These are injustices in America, and they all affect the minorities disproportionately more than they affect the majority culture. You see, here's the thing about race relations, right? When it starts to get talked about, everybody gets a little tight in the room. We get a little tense in here. Can you feel that? Um, oftentimes, it's dismissed altogether, right, and checked off as a non-gospel issue. But I think if you look in uh, Galatians 2, I think you'll find Jesus feels a little bit differently about that. I think you'll find that Paul, Peter, and Barnabas feel a little bit different about that. So here's the thing. When Habakkuk made his grief known to God, God responds. He doesn't say, hey, man, Habakkuk, I'm really sorry to hear about that. I'm really sorry to hear about your injustice in Judah. You know, the world is just a, it's a broken place. You know, maybe some of you heard that before. But I'm, but I'm still on my throne, though. God doesn't say that. He doesn't say that to Habakkuk. He hears Habakkuk. And in chapter 2, he doesn't excuse the greedy, right? He's saying these five woes. He doesn't excuse the greedy. He doesn't excuse the swindlers. He doesn't excuse the oppressors or the abusers or idolaters. He says, woe to you. He doesn't stay quiet. He's not indifferent when it comes to injustice. God hates injustice. And he will always punish injustice. But the question is how, and more, and more personally, how will we handle it when he punishes injustice, right? When there is punishment, not only in the injustment or injustice that we see, but also the injustice that's in us, how will we handle it? How will we get through it? And so we're going to get into Habakkuk 3 here again. And in this chapter, we are reminded of God's goodness. And here's the question that we want to get today. Get to today. Lord, how do I get through this? Right? How do I get through this when the world doesn't seem to look the way I want it to look? When I'm seeing injustice and I feel grieved to my soul, when things are happening to me that I can't control, when life seems to be going awry, how do I get through this? And to kind of talk us through this, I want to give us four points. If you're taking notes, this is probably where you should be taking notes. The first point is to remember to revere God. How do I get through my hard times? How do I get through the injustice? Remember to revere God. Revering God, what does this mean? This means to respond to God in worship despite our circumstances. Right. Oftentimes we complain in suffering and we forget who God is. We are missing our awe. We're missing our understanding in him that he knows and is in control of everything. 
right? In the beginning of chapter 3, Habakkuk reveres God as he opens his mouth saying, O Lord, right? Look at verse 2 here with me. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear? O Lord, when we see it like this in the Bible, um, it's written as a humble remembrance. It's written as a, a humble plea, right? We might say in our lives, oh, Lord, you are sovereign, or oh, Lord, you are good, or oh, Lord, you are knowledgeable. It puts us in our right place with God. These are all things that we seem to see ourselves as, but when it comes down to it, we know that there is only one that has these characteristics. And as we revere God, we should, it should cause us to tremble in respect of the creator and orchestrator of life. When we are reminded when Job questioned God, he responded by asking, what part of creation was he responsible for? Right? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? It wasn't a dismissal. It was a humble reminder. Right? It puts us in our rightful place. It allows us to remember rightly whenever we remember to revere God. And so we, like Job and Habakkuk, are mere, mere creatures, creatures that are created by the creator, creatures who are to give honor, thanks, and reverence to the Lord. Point number two, remember God's track record. So if you guys remember um, the Exodus, this is the whole chapter three of Habakkuk. This is kind of Habakkuk recalling what God has done in the past with Israel and Egypt. Right. Remembering past goodness for us is a great way for us to reconcile and cope with the righteous discipline of God. Look at verse four through six with me. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were everlasting ways. It was the Exodus, right? Habakkuk is recalling the plagues. Look at verse 5 again. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels, right? He's remembering that good work that got to the better work of parting the Red Sea. But he's remembering the water turning into blood. He's remembering the Passover and the killing of the firstborn that ultimately softened Pharaoh's heart enough to say, get your people out of here. Look at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and ride. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. It's the Red Sea. He's talking about the Red Sea. So maybe, maybe you can think back to a time when God parted one of your Red Seas, right? This is a historical account, and it's a, it's a physical Red Sea. The Israelites walked across it. God parted it for them. But there are many times that we come to Red Seas in our lives. Maybe you were standing at the Red Sea of joblessness, right? And God parted your Red Sea, making a way. Or maybe you were standing at the sea of infertility or miscarriage or financial ruin or mental illness or suicide, right? With no place to go, standing at the Red Sea, fearful of taking even another step. And God says, step, and I'll part that sea. 
I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 77, verse 16. He says, the water saw you, God. The water saw you. And what did it do? It trembled. Even the depths shook. This is good news. God is so powerful. Creation has to respond to God. We have to respond to God, right? The elements can't say no. They have to move when God says move. All death and all threat to you and me and all of God's creation has to bow. It has to recognize God. It can't stay there. The Red Sea is no match for the power of the Lord. In verse 19, it says, your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water. Right? It went through when you were standing at the edge of your Red Sea. Maybe it would have been a cancer diagnosis. It went through that. Right? Or maybe it was your insecurity. It went through your insecurity. It went through your guilt, your divorce, your anxiety, the abuse, your affair, the abortion. It went through. God cares for his children too much to take you around the things that ails you. He makes room for you to go through, and he carries you there. Look at the end of verse 19. It says, but your footprints were unseen. I want to read that again. Verse 19, your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. Have you ever turned around to take a look at the path that came through your Red Sea, right? Maybe you were struggling with a sense of guilt and shame and somehow you found yourself on the other side of that and you felt redeemed. It wasn't you. There were footsteps there. It's not your footsteps. Whose footsteps are those? It was God's, right? He moves you. He carries you through that. He doesn't carry you around. He cares for you way too much. He wants to show you who he is. And he never fails. It's a miracle. You can't help but say, that was God. It was God. So recap real here. Um, the first point, we have to revere God if we're going to get through our aches and pains in life, right? We have to, number two, remember what he's done for us. Remember the things that he's brought us through. And number three, we have to remember who we are. Remember who you are. Verse 11 says, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. But you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the mighty waters. Habakkuk is saying here, you are a people loved and saved by God. Right? If you are in Christ, despite the negative feelings that guilt try to put on you, that shame try to put on you, if you are in Christ, God calls you two things. You are number one, loved, and you are number two, his. Okay? 
And when we remember who we are, if we have a right posture of who we are, these are, these are two things that God reminds us. God is mighty to save, right? Sometimes when we're in our situations and we're not thinking and life is going well, and usually it's the time when those things get taken away from us that we get down and start to realize life isn't really what we thought it was going to be, right? For me, I had to look at basketball and say, yo, you can't save me. Only, only God can do that. Right. I had to look at racial reconciliation and say, yo, you can't save me. Despite the injustices that's going on, despite how much I would love for uh, reconciliation, it can't save me. Only God can do that. Your spouse can't do that. Your kids can't do that. Your retirement fund. It comes up short. Verse 13 says, you, referring to God, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He is a living God. All these other things are idols, simply. They can't move. They can't pursue you. They give you temporary glory. They cannot save you. God pursues you. God saves you. And it's only he that can do that. And number two, you are worth fighting for. In a world that says settle, you are worthy of being loved. In a world filled with idols that say you need to be enslaved, you are worthy of being freed. In a world that says you'll always be lonely, you are worthy of being pursued. You see, Habakkuk tells us here that God crushes the house of the wicked. God strips the wicked of their riches and glory, and God pierces the wicked only to remind us that we are worth fighting for. And then Exodus 14, 14, this has been a mantra for me in these last few years. His word is sure. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Which leads me to my last point. Remember your faith. Point four, remember your faith. There's no one size fits all to the way we emotionally respond when it comes to suffering, when troubled times come on us. You know, if we learn anything from Habakkuk or any of the fathers in the Bible, we learn that God is not afraid of our emotions and he's not afraid of our questions. He knows there's evil in the world. He knows we're going to have trouble, right? He knows we're going to fear. He knows we're going to search. He ordained it. He also knows that we're not innocently suffering. And then that he compels us to know who he is and respond accordingly. He, he compels us to trust in his plan and do what? We pray. We pray humbly with an expectant heart, but we do so in a manner of humility. <clears throat> now, as we come to the last verse, verse 16, it says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It's a posture of humility. When we remember our faith, it doesn't necessarily move us to action. It moves us to humility. It says, let me understand who I am in light of God. Let me Get in my right posture. And where is that? On our knees, flat 
on our faces. Telling God who he is so he can tell us who we are loved and worth fighting for. In the conclusion, I just want to say this. When we look at the world and get consumed by this injustice, or when we look at our current circumstances and get weighed down or overwhelmed, we should look like Habakkuk to the saving work that has already been complete, right? Habakkuk only had the chance to look back on a shadow of, of, of what was really to come, right? The exodus, the saving of Israel from the Egyptians. But we get to look back on a Savior that not only understands our suffering, but went through our suffering for us and walks through our suffering with us. Church, if you don't get anything else from this sermon, get this. There could be purposes of good unknown to us in the midst of evil, in the midst of suffering. We can trust God that he is good and that there is no injustice that gets by him, but he offers us a peace. He offers us a peace. It's with his blood. He shed that for us, right? And that comes with waiting. That comes with patience. That comes with humility. And I just want to encourage you all here today to lift up your head and know that it's, all, it's already won. The injustice is taken care of. There's a time where Jesus is going to come back. He died on the cross for it to be finished, and he will come back and make sure that it is so. You can rest and know that. Wait expectantly on the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We are so thankful for a Savior who doesn't ignore our cries and doesn't close his eyes to our pain. You don't silence us or tell us we're out of place. You don't deflect our questions. You don't minimize our suffering. Instead, you hear your people and you inflict wrath on injustice. You are one who enters into our pain and bears our burdens. In fact, you take our burdens so that we can take your glory. Lord, help us to know that the injustices in this world are only the birth pains of a coming kingdom. Thank you for your sacrifice so that we may come to know you and do your will. I pray these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.